Hi, so this is Stu Holiday, and welcome to the Focus Mind podcast. The point of these podcasts is to discuss with interesting leaders in their field about how they've arrived where they are today through being able to cut through the noise and sharpen their focus. With me today is someone I've known for almost five years, Mr. Steve Hobbs. You want to say hi, Steve? Hi, Steve. <laughs> Comedian. Sorry, that was an open goal. Sorry. <laughs> of course you're going to say it. Anyway, I've met Steve through my running friends and community here in London. I'll let Steve introduce himself in a minute and tell his story. But in his former life, he worked in advertising and marketing, I believe. Is that right? Media more than marketing. Okay, but media. Yeah, the okay. same sort of area. Yeah. And through his own love of running, he's actually set up his own company called The Milestone Pursuit which is uh, a run coaching business and aims also to work with businesses and organizations too. Um, and he works with other coaches and helps train athletes at the sharp end of running, as well as people who are brand new, such as couch to 5Kers. I'm interested in uh, these discussions more about Steve's background, and we'll touch on how he came to running, uh, how he sharpened his interest, his focus, and... Um, his skill in the sport before coming a coach, becoming a coach himself, then how he's developed his mindset and what he does to maintain his uh, discipline and focus and what makes him content in his life. Uh, and most importantly, we'll sort of probably ramble along and talk about our shared philosophy on performance, dedication to pursuing goals and what next for him. So Steve, welcome to the Focus Mind podcast. Hi, sorry. Sorry to be flipping earlier, but it was, you did you did just lay it open for me to make the biggest dad joke in the world. Yeah, and if uh, anyone knows what me and Steve are like together, that's pretty typical. So, uh, yeah, full, full disclosure, we know each other very well. We train a bit together, we talk work together, and um, we go back a fair way. So, for me, this is quite a fun chat today, and hopefully uh, the... the the shared understanding we have, let's leave it like that, uh, will we'll shine through. Um, but let go back to what I said about how I'm going uh, to uh, frame today. Steve, how did you get into sport more than uh, running? But how do you get into sport and uh, develop um, from a young age? Sport, blimey. Um, great question. I think it was uh, obviously it's childhood. So just getting out and doing stuff. I grew up on a farm. I, uh, which was in those days in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it's not now because obviously you can get around a lot, lot more, a um, lot more easily, certainly. But we didn't, didn't tend to go anywhere. So I just used to be outdoors all the time doing stuff and uh, kicking a ball around. Just felt really natural thing to do. My dad played a lot of cricket. Um, it was in the days when you'd play two games a weekend. So he'd be off on a Saturday and off on a Sunday playing cricket. We'd go along with him. There'd be other kids to play with, you know, all that kind of you know, natural way of getting into sport. And, you know, you develop some vague aptitude for it. You start playing at a school, getting school teams, and then it progresses from there. So I played a lot of football, a lot of cricket, um, all the way through my childhood years, all the way through school. Um, when I left school, I did, and I did a little bit of athletics then, but not much. You know, just the normal sort of school sports day type stuff and a bit of competition at school, a bit of cross-country running, but not much. And then... Um, Played a lot of football in my 20s uh, to a you know, semi-half-decent standard. Played a lot of cricket in my 30s. And then the running journey began when kids came along towards the latter end of the 30s, really sort of mid-30s onwards, sort of got, um, you know, got seriously into running at that point when 
uh, having the children and my age started to make team sport a little bit more tricky. Mm. Uh, the, the actual running journey probably started in my mind a long time sooner than that because I was uh, totally inspired by the very first London Marathon. So I watched that on the telly as a young boy, nine, I think I was at the time, just thought, wow, that looks amazing. The things that people are putting themselves through, the way they finish, the emotion that comes with that felt amazing. And that was not long after actually the 1980 Olympics, which was also a bit of an inspiration to watching that as a young boy, first time I'd seen that sort of stuff. Sebco, Steve Avert, even Alan Wells, 100 metres, all those sort of things really resonate. But I parked it for years and then came back to running by running the London Marathon in 2001. And that's where it all kind of started. Um, and then got more serious from probably 2010 onwards. Right. And was the, did the children come between 2001 and 2010? Is that a fair guess? No, they were actually a little bit after. So they were 2011 and 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were quite, quite close together. But what that meant was that was the time at which my flexibility for life to be able to play cricket, for example, which is an all day sport mm. is, you know, seriously limited, especially at that time. Cause I was working um, in a more, normal fashion if that's the right best way of putting it in a kind of nine to five e plus sort of fashion so then weekends become a little bit more precious and then that just makes you kind of think about what you do a bit more and i was into getting slowly into running i've done the new york marathon by then uh was had done a london a couple of times more was starting to get into it getting better each time uh and then you know once i started training properly you know the development sped up quite significantly from that period on so just for anyone who doesn't know, can you give us an idea of what training properly to Steve Hobbs standard is without getting too stuck in the weeds? Uh, well, in, at that time, so when I first ran marathons, it was, you know, follow a download a training plan from Runners World type stuff. I can't remember now where I got it from, but follow that um, as best you can within the context of the rest of your life. But then it became, you know, follow a slightly more serious plans, join Victoria Park Harriers and that was a big part of the, my development probably I think that was from 2013 2014 onwards and then it's you know your classic Tuesdays Thursdays long run weekends mm. and then somewhere along the line you you sort of as a poacher turn gamekeeper you not only were doing the training yourself but you were then setting up a coaching business yeah how did that happen yeah so that actually happened as a consequence I think of the serendipitous timing of the birth of my first child in 2011 and the London Olympics. So 2011, 2012 were really pivotal times. And they were also the time when my working life changed significantly because we'd gone through the 2008 credit crunch through to the recession of 2009 into, into 2010. And that changed quite a lot about the way that the industry I was working in was operating. And it became, it, it, started to move away from a place where my what I valued was valued by the people I worked with and for and the industry as a whole and I started to question then at that point what I was what life for me would be about and what I wanted to achieve throughout the rest of my life there was also the other thing that that happens at that time as I turned 40 so you know that's obviously a pivotal time for people to reflect and I don't think it's for me it was never oh I've turned 40 midlife crisis let's have a massive panic it was more Okay, so 40 is a vaguely seminal moment. You've been working for 20 odd years. You're probably going to be, unless you're extremely lucky, going to be working for another 20 years. 
are you realistically going to do the same thing for that entire period or are you going to use your skills in different ways and how do you want your working life to be defined when you reach the end of it and that's what was really driving me at that point in time 2011 2012 was thinking right where do I want to be what do I want to look back on as my working life when it's finished whenever that will be and I was pretty sure at that point that I didn't want it to finish in media and advertising I didn't want that to be what defined my contribution so my um, my career and my career development I didn't think that would be that wouldn't sit well with me by the time I was retired mm. so uh but at that point, I wasn't exactly sure what would. And then obviously, they'll say the Olympics was quite pivotal because that opened my or reopened my mind, really, to the power of sport in helping people in terms of community, but also in terms of uh, self-development and ambition. And it was just a reminder, really, of those things that I spoke about earlier, the 1980 Olympics, just seeing all that stuff play out and thinking that's super inspirational. And I've always been inspired by the Olympics um, over other more professional sports simply because it is the people who compete are often much more normal than somebody who's an elite footballer or an elite cricketer as I would see it so these are you know people who are working they are people who have got other ways of living they're putting everything into reaching the Olympics everything into medals it's not about money it's not about profiteering and that's what comes with it it's now, increasingly now but in those days it was much more you know really pure and those are values that I've always uh, found inspirational. So it felt really natural to me to start having a conversation about where to go into sport, but it was, you know, or how to get into sport. But it, then the question was where and how. Mm. Uh, and that was the time that I was getting into running. And it just felt like a really natural place to go was to try and develop my career into the sport of running. Mm. And a lot of that was driven actually by the values that I carry around how I worked and how I, I thought what I thought was important in working in business, which is you know, how you help develop people, how you coach people, how you nurture people to, to deliver the organization's goals. Mm. And in particular, one of the things that you and I have spoken loads about, but that's where this idea came from, that there is loads of things that we learn and develop as a runner that are important to us as runners that help us become better runners, but are also important in helping us become better in business and better in managing our careers. Um, so, and that's, that marriage of those sort of values, if you like, is what made running really attractive to me as a, as a proposition to become a coach within. And I mean, in terms of becoming a coach, what was the journey? Did you get offered it by the club you were in or did you just go out and seek to get the endurance coaching qualification? No, I, I did that independently. Um, at first, the club were very supportive of it, um, but that was not the, that was not the, the, the the route really the route was really my own drive and ambition to to do it and then the club would support it and I've been coaching at the club since and that's been a really useful and beneficial thing to do um, because you gain experience from doing it you meet loads of people you're helping loads of people it's a really good place to be and the clubs are great it's a great club it's on the up it certainly was pre-pandemic and uh, you know a, there's a fantastic group of people to to support. Mm -hmm. So what 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 level coach are you actually? Like if we look on the badge, what what have you got? Well, the interesting thing about the coaching process is, uh, and this is one of the conversations that I think is really interesting about becoming a coach, is when I entered the sport, and I still got ambitions, right? So I still want to do lots of interesting things with my coaching within uh, the sport of running. It's not it's not about couch to five k. It's not about elites. It's about all of it. But I'm very ambitious in what I'd like to achieve. 
And when you look at it, you go, okay, so I've, I've re- entered something relatively late. There's a whole bunch of people who've been doing what I'm now trying to do for a very long period of time. And so you come into it with a bit of imposter syndrome. So you come into it thinking, do I really get to have these conversations with seriously good athletes about what they're trying to achieve when I'm slightly newer to it? I'm not really experienced. I played a lot of football and cricket for years. Running, I came to relatively late. You know, I'm not dyed in the wool. I'm not an ex-pro. I'm not an ex-elite. And you come into that and you think, well, so what do I need? So I need some qualifications to get over some of this imposter syndrome. But actually, I settled quite quickly on this idea that um, my experience in business was actually just as useful. And when I look back at what I achieved in business, a lot of it was around the area of coaching and developing people. So that side of it was not new. Mm. So what I needed to learn was some of the fundamentals about uh, running sessions. You know, how do you coach a group? You know, that is surprisingly difficult, um, particularly when you haven't done it for done it before. So get that under my belt get some of the uh, British athletics qualifications going, but then not overdo it after that. And I'm really well read. So I, oh, I'll say that, it would sound terribly arrogant, but I read a lot about, um, about the sport and a lot of the science behind the sport. But I also believe that, you know, you can't just be driven by science because we're coaching people. And it's a, a, for me, coaching is a real blend of the art and the science of how you work with people to get the best out of them and what deliver something that works for them and how you apply the science within that context. So I did the basic um, England athletics coaching qualifications and there's loads more that can be done, but I personally think there's more to be done outside of that as well to develop myself. Mm. And that's quite an interesting point to kind of take us towards mindset, because obviously in your running journey, um, which listeners might not know, is that as you've been doing more training and competition yourself, you've got quicker and quicker. And given what I do for a living, you know, a lot of that's around mindset and mindset conditioning, if you want to use that term, uh, developing, you know, like the brain as well as the body. And just wondered about you speaking to that, both first of all as a runner yourself and then what you've done bringing that into your coaching. Yeah, so that's a really interesting one. And I think you and I, one of the things that we share is this fascination between about the relationship between the brain and the body. And that's the way I think about it a lot is that those two things are distinct, but they work very closely together. And it sounds like the most obvious thing in the world to be talking about and saying, of course, the brain's related to the body, but it's about how and what mechanisms you use to sometimes override the signals that your body sends your brain and vice versa. And that's one of the real tricks that I think that we can try and encourage people to understand more about so that they can overcome some natural barriers that, that come along the way, whether that's in marathon running or in business or whatever con- context that might be. Uh, well, um, and for you with your own running, tell us yeah. then how you develop that part. You know, if, if you're going quicker and you're doing more training, we can assume your physical fitness is getting better and that we see, but how did you go about training your mind as you were developing as a runner yourself? Um, So that's where, for me, you have to, and what I've spent a lot of time doing is figuring out the purpose of it. So when when you're training at any level and for any distance, there is a point at which it gets hard. And, you know, any run gets hard, pretty much. Uh, Racing gets hard. There's a point at which it gets almost unmanageably hard and you have to find a way to navigate yourself through that if you're going to give justice to your training, give justice to your... Um, to your fitness and also your your capability um 
So the thing that I spend a lot of time thinking about for myself is as I'm going through any session and any uh, training block, I'm thinking why. I'm thinking why is this important? Why is this necessary? What's this going to do? And where is it going to lead? And how does it match up to my longer term objectives? And then what I, what's the purpose behind my longer term objectives? So that why question, which you know, sometimes I ask as if people are five and I ask it as if I'm a four-year-old, but it is, you know, why, why? Keep asking yourself why until you get to this very deep and underlying emotional reason as to why something is important to you. And if you keep doing that to yourself, you'll soon realise that it's usually related to a human-based emotion. It's usually related to somebody who you are trying to make either proud or prove wrong or um, show that you are capable of what you're capable of. And that's what inevitably ends up driving over the line. So particularly in the earlier years of my marathon um, running career, when I was developing quite quickly, there's a lot in there about my family being proud of me when I finished the line. And that's my children predominantly, even though they would, they got no idea and they had no idea at the time. It was still that sense of, no, I'm going to keep going and keep pushing because I want to get across that line. And I know what that line crossing that line feels like. And I want to feel that. And I want to make sure that I know, there's, you know, they, my children know that their, their father is someone who, who doesn't give up, who pushes and drives and has got all this capability. So that's a big part of it. And there's, and you can use that in loads of ways. You can use that as an ego. You can use that as, you know, I want to be better than X, Y, Z person, or I want to be better than X, Y, Z person of my previous generation. Um, and you can use that to drive yourself to better performance because you can use that to, what I talk a lot about is how you let the heart overrule the head. So at this point in time, your emotions are driving your level of performance in a way your head is not because your head is screaming at you to stop because it's the, the signals it's receiving from your body is pain. Mm. Yeah, boy, there's the old expression, um, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and when we've all got different taps we can open up at different times in our lives as well, and that changes too. Um, based on your, your drivers, but also based on how stressed you are, your emotional well-being at any given time. It's, it's really clear to me in my time of coaching without any scientific evidence that when people have been stressed through a training block and they've had difficulties in their life, they perform less well in, in, a, in a race because they're emotionally exhausted. Mm. And they, they go to that start line going, you know, am I going to be able to push through from mile 23 to mile 26? With my body screaming at me I and mean, I need my emotions but if my emotions are already run dry by something that happened six weeks ago in my personal life then it's going to be pretty difficult. Sure so one thing for me partly curiosity but also to demonstrate that you're human after all is can <laughs> you think of a time where you've been in a race and you've really had to go to the well and you've you've had to eat your own dog food in terms of finding your why and like really tapping into it uh yeah absolutely i mean you can talk about the races that go well and the races that don't um there's been no i don't, I, I can't remember how many road marathons i've run now so something like 16 17 something like that and i've you know went for a run where i hadn't there was a period of time when i pb'd in all of them apart from one or something and and that, that's changed a bit now but um you know you question yourself on the ones that don't go so well you question yourself did i push did i train well or did i employ a sensible race strategy and often it's the latter you know what didn't really think about my race strategy but the ones that go well are the ones where you feel on top of it and you go you go hard throughout the one that you remember which you you cycled alongside me at some point which was manchester in 2019 is the one that i remember 
most vividly for good and bad reasons. You know, it was a PB, but I got pretty sick at the end and that was, and I got sick at the end because I pushed myself too hard through the race. And, you know, I, I was running reasonably well. I didn't feel great at any point in the race, but I kept telling myself my why I've got to keep going. I've got to keep going. And my why at that point was all about demonstrating to, to an extent, to your point about eating your own dog food, it was, you know, standing up for what I think is the way to coach and the way to be as a marathon runner and never giving up and all that sort of stuff. Because one of the responsibilities you have as a coach runner is when you run, you kind of have to do what you're asking other people to do um, mm. because it undermines your credibility, I think, if you don't. So you kind of got to step up a little bit. And I wasn't feeling great, but I stuck at it. And you know, there's a point where I went past you and you were ringing the bells. And I can't remember where that was. It's at 20 miles or something. And I thought, I'd never thought that my objective was on at any point in the race because I wasn't feeling good. But I was still on target at 20 miles. And I thought, I've come this far. I've got to keep pushing now. Your why is you do not give up at this point. You keep pushing. And by the time I got to 23 miles, you know, it was starting to get a bit harder, as you might imagine. And I remember wanting to slow down so vividly wanting to slow down and my legs were going no slow down now and I almost like almost went and I shouted at myself as I was running along mm. out loud shouted at myself no you keep going and I kept going to 25 miles and then it all fell apart and you know the legs went completely and it was like proper jelly legs crossing the line hospital tent all that sort of stuff still pb'd and I'm kind of proud of being able to push through mm. but I'm also conscious that I put myself into a little bit of danger um mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't I wasn't the healthiest being on earth for a few hours after the race. Did you vom? No, there's no vom, but I couldn't um but the the wheelchair came out when I told the person who was helping me that I wanted to go to sleep. Mm. Like, oh, okay, they will get you, we'll move you quickly into the medical tent now, because that's a bit of a red flag to people that you but that's basically passing out, isn't it? You know, you mm-hmm. just want to sleep. So um yeah, I just had a seriously high temperature uh that took a couple of hours to calm down loads of ice being poured all over you loads of ice yeah yeah and i bet you barely felt it compared to if we did it right now um (laughs) i wouldn't go that far i mean it wasn't the most enjoyable experience (laughs) (laughs) but um early vim hoff (laughs) (laughs) but a a lot of that you know that's the consequence one of the consequences So, so what we talk about a lot is turning off your turning off your brain really allowing you know turning off the central governor system the central governor system is there to stop you getting into danger your brain is telling you giving you those signals of stop you're putting your you're working too hard you're doing too much partly because it doesn't know that you're going to stop at some point in the future that you know but your body doesn't yeah. it's like in reps your body doesn't know you're only doing two minutes so it tells you after 90 seconds no no stop now go well no but i've only got two minutes it's fine yeah. um and in this case of this it was like no your body is telling you to stop because it wants to protect you yeah. and that's the signal my body was sending me but i overrode that and it was you know there is a role for that, but yeah. sometimes you can take it a little bit too far. Of course. So, I mean, obviously I'm really keen on um, training attention, training focus, and you're saying that with your philosophy, you, um, your way of getting people to focus and the way you do it for yourself is to focus in on your why and hold on to it quite tightly. If there was someone listening to this um, broadcast and they they were improving as a runner and they wanted to know the special source ingredient other than more training and different kinds of sessions and blah blah but particularly around the psychological aspects 
you know, I've heard you talk about how when it's getting really tough, like you've just been saying there, that you've got to focus in on like overriding the system by focusing in on that emotional why. But how would you actually recommend it to people as they're doing the tough stuff, whether that's in training or in races? Would you say that they need to repeat it as a mantra or how, how would you answer that for someone who hasn't really sort of dug that deeply yet? Yeah, I think that's a really good point because um, it's, it's all well and good me saying it, but how do you apply it? And I think you've, what you say is absolutely right. It's a, for me, it's about a mantra. It's a single repeatable line. It's simple. It's easy. It's not complicated because the more complicated it is, more likely is you're going to forget it. Mm. And you are able to say it to yourself repeatedly um, when things get tough. You no, know, it's hurting now. And, and this is where I apply my mantra, whether it's I'm doing it for my children, I'm doing it for my parents. You know, I'm tough. I can do this. I can do hard things. I can push through. I'm resilient, you know, whatever it is. And we'd have discussed that beforehand. So that it's attuned to you and your values. Those are the things to, to work on and repeat and practice. And do you get your athletes to do that, say at the track, if they're doing a track session or something like that, will you get them to practice during that training block for a race so that when they come to the race, they've got a bit of rehearsal? Yeah, sometimes not always. And it depends a lot on the individual um, and what they're driven by. Sometimes it's really obvious. And, the, and actually the more serious the athlete, the more obvious it is. And it's much more second nature to them. Mm. Um, that's not to say that they couldn't push further if they had a little bit more insight into what, is really driving them but predominantly it's you know it's something that can really very well support the majority of people when things get tough and practicing it is key yeah absolutely mm-hmm. I, the study that i was doing for my uh, qualification last year was using brief uh, skills uh, using self-talk which is what you're describing that voice inside our heads yeah and um based on the research and also what we were trying to get people to do what we found out was the more simple it is that you do great but also um it was less about repeating out these mantras all the time constantly like dig 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 it was just about using them at the most crucial points and that was that's something that's still being a bit researched now but it's you know it's kind of like use it and try and use it sparingly but obviously the harder it gets it's probably coming a little bit more frequently yeah yeah, yeah. um i did it yeah that should be published this year hopefully all right cool so um to be shared widely with the audience so um obviously mindset development is there and i know that when you start taking on athletes one of the things you're trying to do is rather than just going right then fred uh you want to do an x time in a marathon great okay i can do you a three-hour training plan for instance you 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 do try from what i understand and this is sort of like just i'm curious to get the detail do you always ask your athletes that why and kind of do a bit more kind of in depth with them before saying, right, and this is now follow this 12 week plan or whatever it might be? Not always, actually, um, because a lot of times what I've learned is that it's not something that everyone's immediately receptive to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of people are, will employ you as a coach and go, well, I just want to run faster. Doesn't everyone want to run faster? It doesn't everyone want to get better. And, you know, at that point you think, okay, I might just park this conversation for a day when, uh, when, when we really need it. And the other, the other reason I might not is because often with people who come to a coach fresh, particularly less experienced people, and that's not less able people. It's just people who've not been running for as long. They typically employ a coach. And while I was talking through the, the, the natural cycle that they were going to go through, which is they'll see a spike in performance improvement probably quite quickly. 
And that's nothing to do with the coach. That's about accountability. That's about having a plan to follow and somebody to keep an eye on them. Suddenly, usually improves performance quite quickly, particularly for less experienced mm-hmm. runners. Um, again, I said that's not about less able. That's just people who've been doing it less tend to tend to have that that spike. Then there is a bit of a plateau uh, where you know that early bit has has kind of that shine has worn worn off a little bit. And then that's for me when I say that's when the real work begins. That's when I start to actually earn my bucks. It's when you start to learn about you as an athlete, what drives you both physically and psychologically and then we can start to get into those types of conversations and then there's probably that will then have another spike and then there's probably a third plateau or a second plateau where uh it gets even harder to really figure out what you can do you can't really increase their training volume anymore because of their lifestyle you can't really change too much about the structure of their training so we've got to unlock all the little gems that are going to help improve performance in races and that for a lot a lot of times is psychological Mm. Yeah, so what I've written down here is what we call the you are the accountability partner, which is why people would probably employ a coach. Yeah. Someone to be accountable to who will keep them honest and true. Yeah. Do you ever, because of the experience you've got now, do you ever kind of screen people and not take them on because that you think that they just, you know, you test them to see if they've got the gumption to stick to a plan and you feel they won't? I will challenge them, absolutely. If I feel that they won't stick to a plan, are they going to stop? they're not going to be able to stick to a plan or send them down, a, try and send them down a different route and t- see, see what they feel about that. And that's why in the, the, the coaching business, we've got a range of different types of ways of working so that it can be adapted. So some people, for example, want to be told literally every day, this is what I'm supposed to do. Some people want to be told roughly what they should do and fit it all in together and manage it themselves. Or it, some people want coaching around the psychological stuff but actually set their own sessions some people uh, want a mixture of it all and you've kind of got to figure out with them what's going to work best for them and probably change it on the hoof a lot of the time as well but yeah absolutely if, if I don't think it's suitable for someone to have a seven-day schedule laid out for them because they're not going to follow it then uh, we'll have that conversation as to what the other options might be and how we could support them or not Mm. has the journey of training athletes um made you reconsider or change how you work on mindset with people um it definitely has in the sense that obviously i have more experience of doing it i wouldn't know i wouldn't be able to actually pin down how it's changed i think i mean the thing that we say a lot is that everybody's different and in running in particular, you notice that a lot more, I think, because it's not necessarily about physical movement. Obviously, it is about physical movement and biomechanics is an important feature. But a lot of the fitness and the psychological side of it, you would think can be quite common to everybody, but it's really not. And everything is everyone is very different. So probably yeah, I'm probably more extremely moved towards the side of treating everybody completely differently than I was at the very outset when I probably thought there was some templates you could apply to everybody that would work equally well. Um, one of the sayings that, that, you know, we all have our sayings, don't we, as coaches, but one of the things that I will say is that, you know, what I try to do is treat everybody equally individually. As in, you know, everyone's an individual and everyone has you know, some level of equality within that. But the way I treat everyone is very different. Mm. And occasionally, either as a joke or as a, as a, a piece of feedback, shall we say, I will get someone saying, why is that person doing that? Why aren't I doing that? 
and that's when I'll have that conversation with them about individuality mm. um, and making sure that people are receiving an individual approach to what they do because it is so natural. And I would say to people that no matter, you could have an identical twin trying to do exactly the same thing uh, as as you. So you've got two of you, twins, trying to do the same thing, but I would you would still have different training plans because your lifestyles are different. Your experience is indifferent up to this point. And and the thing that I mean, I was going to ask you about um, a shared philosophy on performance, and that was maybe a bit more about me and you. But what what would you say, adding on to what you've said already about what your philosophy is about performance and people pushing themselves in life? Um, well, the one the one thing that I find really interesting is I I think running is a sport where the relationship between elites and beginners is closer than any other sport. And I think that because, and the way I, I think about that is that personally, I find elites inspiring, but I also find complete beginners inspiring to the same level. And the reason that I think that is because we are all trying to do the same thing. We are all pushing, it's all hurting. We're all trying to get better, whatever it is we're trying to get better. And we all face the same challenges of how we manage this within our lifestyle and whether how we manage fatigue and how we manage injury faces us all. And when it comes to things like the London Marathon, we all run on the same course on the same day in normal times. Mm. So there's a really common and shared experience around that. Yet we're all, whilst we have that common experience, we're all so different. And that I think is one of the things that I think about a lot in performance is how we all have very similar things that drive us or, or, um, uh, that help us to perform but everything is slightly different for every single person and the experience is, is unique and you have to take account of that for yourself and you have to work out what your own barriers are whether they're you know the internal barriers the things that you carry with you that are going to impair your performance but also what the external barriers are whether you know the impact of your lifestyle on your performance whatever it might be to really overcome and to deliver performance. Mm. so almost like uh, by the time someone comes to you if they're coming to you that's almost the sniff test for steve hobbs that this person's serious because if they've come to me they want to get better yeah definitely mm. and and there's a you know there's a and the interesting thing about that for me as well when you get into it is you, know, you learn having coached a number of people and seen how much they can improve not through your coaching but through their own hard work you go okay there is more potential inside absolutely everybody then everybody gives themselves credit for and that might be in running and you know there's a few people who are who don't know that they're capable of way more than they're capable of but it's also outside of running and i see it all the time that people underestimate their own potential and when you're coaching or they're in coaching and running or in coaching in business i look at people and just think you just don't know what you're capable of in a nice way and in a sometimes in a negative way i think of it it's like you're underperforming you just don't realize how good you can be and for me, that's one of the greatest frustrations as a coach is someone who doesn't realise, doesn't ha hasn't had anyone champion them before, that they can they can be genuinely great, whether it's running or somewhere else in their life. And is that I mean that's an interesting point because you know we live in a society which, on one surface, can seem like everyone's championing themselves, Instagram or whatever. But when it comes to something that you're touching on there, do you say the majority are very much? The other way and a bit more like you're looking at them and they could be they're not celebrating their successes they're not pushing themselves 
in a way they they could actually enhance their performance yeah not universally but definitely there is a sense for me that people and it again it's not you know not everyone and it does vary by you know your experiences and the way you've been treated in the past and all these types of things but for me you know there are everybody's got potential for greatness of some description or another and I don't mean you know we're not all going to be world leaders and we're not all going to all going to be world record holders but you can push yourself to a point where you'll get a lot more out of yourself body and brain by understanding you understanding yourself a little bit more and understanding what makes you what what creates drive for you so understanding your purpose and understanding your your why for me is and, and then working hard is why there is a load of potential inside people the thing i sometimes get um skeptical of slightly nervous of actually that there's a message out there that you can dream and when you dream you can achieve and it's kind of that impossible is nothing type of message that adidas used to run which gets misinterpreted i think a lot which is you know we can just do stuff you know, dream it and it can happen you know that there you of course you can have dreams and of course you can have stuff that happens but there's a massive bit in the middle within that which is called graft it's actually working hard from your dream to reality and getting the stuff done in the middle that I worry that is kind of missing in the narrative. And that hard work in the middle is the doing, you know, it's the, in running senses, doing the training sessions, it's doing your rehab from injury, it's doing your strength work, but it's doing your psych work, it's all that. But it is, it's also, it is also the kind of understanding it and understanding why this is so important to you. Because I think a lot of times people come short of delivering against their performance, uh, their potential rather, and against their objectives is because they don't understand enough about why what they're trying to do is so important to them individually. Because once you've got that, that's how you allow your emotions to rule and not your head when it gets tricky. Mm. And um, obviously people listening to this can tell that, you know, you're, you're, you love, running yourself and you've got your own company that's about that you've got a podcast you've got you know people you coach but other than you know dashing around on two legs what what for you makes a content life um i'm at my best i think when i'm and i feel most alive when i'm helping others reach their potential and it sounds like a terribly wanky thing to say sorry I shouldn't have, you're gonna to have to edit that bit out now Stu. That sounds, that sounds like a terrible worthy thing to say but it's um but as i've got older and as i've understood myself better it's become clearer that's core to who i am and what i believe in and sport is a really useful vehicle for doing it it's something that a lot of people are passionate about what kind of sport it is is slightly irrelevant Mm. Uh, but seeing people perform at their best in any context whether it's an elite or whether it is a beginner and helping people understand how they can improve and get that deliver against their potential is is really is really my sweet spot and seeing that unfold is brilliant and being involved in it is brilliant um so the more of that i can do that that creates contentment for me um and then i guess you know for me as an individual i don't know how i mean my life is so chaotic with the children schools obviously the last 12 months has been really difficult contentment is is fleeting isn't it i always think of contentment and happiness as being about balance and you know not in a sort of work lifey balance or a personal versus others balance it's more about 
know, your your sands are current, are always shifting. I'm holding my hands at like an mm. equilibrium here. And you know, if you imagine a seesaw, you're only ever on that pivot in the balanced way. For a fleeting moment in time, you're either up or you're down, and you're always moving in between the two. So that's that contentment as an individual is very fleeting. Mm. But but I think you know, just knowing what that is is important because when you're up, you can bring yourself back to contentment by knowing what you need to do. And when you're down, you can bring yourself back to contentment by knowing what you need to do because you understand it a little bit more. Is that your, is that your guiding philosophy that keeps you going in life, would you say? Well, the, the, you manage the ups and the downs and try and balance them out. And mm. Yeah, I think so. I think if, if the 12, last 12 months has taught us nothing, it's taught us that we can cope with difficult stuff. You know, we've all in the last 12 months, we've all had a tough time of some description. And when I coach people, I talk about this all the time and everyone says the same thing, which is, well, I can't complain because uh, that person over there has had it way harder than I have. Yeah, well, yeah, that might be factually correct, but that doesn't invalidate your feelings and invalidate the fact that you've had it worse than you used to have it. So you're, the way you're feeling is understandably, you know, that this has been, it's understandable that you say that this is tricky. And that's the first part. Recognize it. It's been hard. Yeah. It is hard, but you can get through it. We can get through hard things. And by understanding yourself and understanding, you know, how you balance between your ups and your downs in the swing between the two and what you need to do to, to create those balances, I think is really important. And then you come back to running again, you know, without running many people's experience through lockdown, including my own would have been considerably worse because it's a great mental health device. And as well as the mental health benefits, do you also think through putting yourself through 16, 17 marathons and all the training and all the rest of it, that actually it's been good practice for coping with the pandemic? Do you think that being a runner is almost good training for coping with the world like this? Definitely. And on loads of levels. And, you know, a, a, a good example of how you can train your brain So resilience. When I talk about resilience, there's loads of ways of talking about resilience. When I talk about resilience, one of the things I talk about is that that resilience comes when you understand how to solve problems and problem solving is a learned technique or it's a learned skill. You know, you develop problem solving by doing Sudoku, you believe, you know, whether it's, or doing a bit of DIY, you, you're, you're solving problems that you, and you learn how to solve problems that become bigger, the bigger the problem, you know, the lot harder the solution, but there will be a solution there. And I remember, um, a piece of resilience, I suppose, that I've really, it's weirdly, I've latched onto this really silly example of it, but I was running the uh, Berlin Marathon in 2016, I think, and I wasn't in the best shape, but I still wanted to run, run well, and I, I still had a, you know, a solid objective and tried to push myself. And after about five or six miles or so, and when I, when I race, uh, when I race marathons, I'm very specific on pacing and watch and all that kind of stuff. So I need my watch to function for me quite nicely. I don't really rely on on-course clocks. It's about my wrist. And uh, about five or six miles in, uh, someone bumped into me as I'm running and just knocked my, my arm. And uh, I didn't think anything of it. And then, I don't know how many seconds later, minutes later, it wasn't long, but maybe 30 seconds later, I looked at my watch and they turned my watch off as I was, as I was running. It's like, and I, I wanted to shout at them, you've turned my watch off. Obviously, they wouldn't have understood probably because they're probably not speaking English. But anyway, and it was also irrelevant. And I had a quick decision to make at that point. Like, what do I do now? Do I allow this to derail my race? It's just a simple act that someone has done. It's not my fault. It's not really their fault. They could have perhaps been less clumsy in their running, but it's not the end of the world. What do I do? 
well, I'm not going to give up my race now just because I've lost the timing. I don't know my splits. I don't know, you know, where I am in my plan. I've got to rethink this. And so I did. And just I think, right, I'm going to use the on-course clocks. I'm going to run a bit more to feel. I'm going to sort of work out some maths now, pull it back and see see what happens. Because letting it get to you is not going to help you. Draining that energy you talked about earlier. Totally, it? yeah. Yeah. Totally. Did, how did you get on in the race? Um, I had a complete disaster. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, great. I thought you were going to say, I had a PB, and it was the best. No, yeah. I mean, it was when I, I was slightly injured going into it, and it got really sore by the end, and I managed to haul myself across the line just in what I would deem as a, an acceptable performance for, yeah. for the shape I was in. Um, and it was actually one of those that you end up being really proud of because of the, you know, the adversity. You know, my foot was really sore. I probably shouldn't have run it, all that sort of stuff. And you get across the line in a, in a vaguely decent time. Great stuff. One final question for you, given that we're trying to I hone in on focus and so you focus in on goals and the pursuit of a milestone that's important to you. You were talking about you were in a sweet spot and you were like, where you, you know, the Manchester Marathon being a highlight for you. But I'm just curious to know whether that's also the same part of where you feel you had the most focus ever in your life. Can you remember uh... whether that is or there's another occasion where you felt most focused in on what was important to you? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. I, I, I mean, I don't know that it would be in racing or in sport. It'd probably be more around my children and how I think about when I'm at my best, my, at my best with my children. You're thinking fully about them and what they need. And whether that's when they're younger or whether now they're nine and eight, they're developing and they're, they're struggling with stuff, you know, what, what's my attention? And when I think you're focused fully on, on that, you perform well. Um, but it's very hard to do because you've got so many other things going on. The pandemic, again, has shone a light on that. And when you're homeschooling children, if you're trying to do something else whilst trying to support their, their learning, it's a recipe for disaster. If you can, in my experience, you know, everyone's experience yeah. is different, but if I can focus on what they're trying to do, and it's not about the academics, it's about the process for me. It was a lot about, you know, the, the process of learning, so listening to instructions, you know, simple stuff, but listening to instructions, trying your best with the work, being honest with yourself about how hard you're trying, all that, those types of things. You focus on it, it becomes effective. As soon as you're trying to do something else, it, it kind of doesn't. And mixing goals, I think, is, a, is a, and allowing goal creep to happen which is where you sort of change your goals halfway through the delivery of them can, can cause you big problems, I think, on that context. Great answer. Well, on that note, let's, uh, let's uh, wrap things up, Steve. Thanks for your time today and thanks for being on the Focus Mind podcast. No worries. I enjoyed it. Thank you. No problem. Thanks a lot. See you next time.